How is everyone? Doing well? Yeah, thanks for saying those kind words. Brandon, thank you for the welcome back. Top three, welcome back, I think, to the roots. Um, I'm grateful to be able to fill in both this week and next, and we're going to journey back to the Old Testament uh, for the times that we're together. So I'm excited to take us back there and spend some time in the book of Genesis. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. That's where we'll pick up, but we'll ultimately get to chapter 32. Well, the dictionary defines the word metamorphosis as the change of physical form, structure, or substance. It's also defined as a striking alteration in appearance, character, or circumstances. A third definition for metamorphosis is an abrupt developmental change. Well, as you know, there are several animals that go through metamorphosis. Butterflies, course, frogs, ladybugs, mayflies, the peacock spider. I really don't want to see that one. The immortal jellyfish. Never heard of that, but apparently that exists. And lobsters. Lobsters go through metamorphosis. When it comes to Scripture, The Bible doesn't describe people going through physical metamorphosis, of course, but rather it describes people going through spiritual metamorphosis. The spiritually dead being transformed, altered, and being made spiritually alive in Christ. Of course, that doctrine isn't called the doctrine of metamorphosis, but it's called the doctrine of regeneration, where God, by His magnificent grace through his son Christ, he transforms the dead sinner from the darkness to light, the marvelous light, Peter tells us. He transforms the sinner from the kingdom of Satan uh, to the kingdom of God, uh, to the kingdom of Christ. My question for you this morning is, have you experienced spiritual metamorphosis, spiritual change Uh, transformation, that doctrine of regeneration. Well, in the Old Testament, specifically the book of Genesis, there is a certain man that was in desperate need of spiritual change, of renewal, of transformation, a man by the name of Jacob. And over two chapters... In Genesis, the human author of Genesis narrates Jacob's character change or his character uh, transformation, positioning him as righteous before God. What we see happen to Jacob in those early chapters in Genesis, as it relates to his character transformation, is exactly what needs to happen to us. 
If you aren't in Christ this morning, you need a drastic spiritual transformation. Uh, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ to be mapped onto your life. And I'm not merely suggesting that. I, I'm commanding that on the authority of Scripture. Mark chapter 1, Jesus commands and requires that you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. You must have that type of transformation. If you're in Christ this morning, which many of you are, you need to continue to be transformed to the image of Christ from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. That you need to be transformed to the image of God's Son, Romans 8, until Christ returns, 1 John 3. So this weekend and next, we are going to study Jacob's character transformation as recorded in Genesis 32 through 33. Now to get us going here, I want us to spend a little bit of time orienting ourselves with the book of Genesis. I, I know that recently, I guess it's been a few months now, as you've been working through uh, books of the Bible in your Route 66 series, you went through Genesis. I think it was Garrett that took you through Genesis, and, and you worked through sort of the Genesis and its world. We're going to do a little bit of that to kick us off this morning because that context is critical for understanding what has to happen to Jacob. His character has to be transformed, not just for him personally. I mean, we all need that character transformation, as I just mentioned. But the plan of redemption is going to work its way through Jacob, but he has to be transformed in order for that plan to continue to move forward. We'll see that here as we begin looking at the context of Genesis. So let's jump right into it. Let's talk about Genesis and its world. Let me give you sort of the plot line of Genesis. And I want to do this because often, and I am guilty of this, often we think of Genesis in apologetic terms, right? And in one sense, Genesis is that. It is an apologetic for the beginning, creation, and those things. But a lot of times we think of Genesis in the sense of defending a literal six-day creation. Some bad things happen in Genesis chapter 3. There's a lot of water in this flood situation with Noah and the ark. We come across a lot of new languages in Genesis chapter 11. We get that magnificent Abraham covenant in chapter 12. For some reason, Abraham decides that he is going to sacrifice his son on God's instructions. And that doesn't happen, of course, praise God. And then it's a little fuzzy there in the middle and then we get to the, like the Joseph narrative, and we understand, man, a lot of bad things happened to Joseph, but man, he rose in power, saved the nation, and then on into Exodus. Sometimes we think of Genesis like that, and I think to one degree it's okay to do that because that's what Genesis is about. But let me give you the, the, the story of Genesis, and let me summarize the plot line for you. I think it's going to help sort of magnify where we're going to be today and next week. Uh, the plot line of Genesis can be summarized this way. It's the tracking or the tracing of the Genesis 3.15 seed through the nations and eventually the family of Abraham. So Genesis is essentially tracking 
that Genesis 3:15 seed, that seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head, tracking that seed as it begins broadly with the nations, and then ultimately, when you get to Genesis 12, it begins working through the family of Abraham. Now, that is best defined and that is best broken down in Genesis with what is known as the Toledot formula. So I have you there in Genesis chapter 2, and I, I want to show you this, the Toledot formula. If you go to Genesis 2, 4, uh, you see it begins with, uh, this is the history or the generations of the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word there for history or generations is Toledot. And it is translated history or generations. So 11 times in Genesis, you come across that Toledot formula. And what it does is it draws your attention to the next section or the next focal points in Genesis. Important for us to understand that. Now, you'll notice if you just scan your eyes across Genesis 2 or down the page, that after that first Toledot formula is given, notice there's a microscope on what? Or I guess you could say who? Adam and Eve, humanity. So as you keep going, turn over to chapter five. We're not gonna go through all of these, but as you keep going in chapter five, go to chapter five, verse one. It says, this is the book of the genealogies or the generation or the history of Adam, the next Toledot formula. And if you notice the remainder of that chapter, again, just glance your eyes down the page, Notice you see a lot of what? You just see a lot of people's names that you really just don't want to read out loud because you can't pronounce them. You see this focus on people, right? Turn over to chapter 6. Let me show you just a couple more. Chapter 6, verse 9. The next Toledot, this is the genealogy of Noah, and then it talks about Noah's three sons, And this goes on. We'll look at one more. Go to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 27. This is the genealogy or the generations or the beginnings of Terah, which is Abraham's father. So every time you come across that, so whenever you're doing your Bible reading plan or whenever you're beginning in the Old Testament and just working your way all the way through Scripture, Remember that when you come to those Toledot formulas, Moses, the author, is trying to draw your attention onto the fact that he is talking about a specific family. He wants to highlight that family. Now, why does he want to highlight that family? Well, because that's what the Genesis 3.15 seed is, how that's ultimately coming to fruition. We know that the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent, is... Jesus Christ, who will be the God-man. So Genesis 50 chapters essentially traces that theme and that seed throughout its entirety. Now, you can see here on the slides, there's another subplot that's absolutely critical, and this is where we're going with the transformation of Jacob. It is that Every generation or every family that the narrative draws attention to where that 315 seed goes through, that character, that person, he possesses righteousness, virtue, okay? 
Again, you see that all the way through, and we don't have time to get into the nuances of that. But in some way, shape, or form, don't miss this, in some way, shape, or form, the narrative presents that person that the seed will go through as someone who is righteous, not someone who's perfect, right? Not someone who's perfect, uh, but someone who is uh, righteous. So let's look here, turn back to Genesis 6. Let me give you a couple examples of that so you can have it in your mind. Turn it to Genesis 6. Uh, Notice uh, verse 8. We're told here, but Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you're expecting some sort of dramatic conversion like you see with the Apostle Paul in Acts 9, Genesis doesn't do that. Genesis just presents characters and makes several comments about them as they are in right standing with God. Okay, you following with me here? So there's an example of one with Noah. Of course, the seed goes through Noah. It goes through his son, Shem, ultimately making its way to Abraham. Turn over to chapter 15. Let me give you another example. Chapter 15, if you go to chapter 15, verse 6, you recognize this verse. Abraham believed the Lord, or he believed Yahweh, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So there's that righteousness motif, that, uh, the idea that, that Abraham, is, he's virtuous. Not perfect, but he's uh, virtuous. Now that keeps going all throughout the narrative. So by the time you get to uh, Genesis uh, 37 and 38, you've got Joseph and Judah who are presented essentially as righteous, and the rest of Genesis lays out which one of those sons the seed will go through. And this makes more sense in my mind if you're not totally tracking with it because we're studying Omega in the adult Sunday school class for the last year or so. So I've just been dropped into the Genesis world for a while now. But that's where we're going when we look at the character transformation of Jacob. As it stands at this point, before you get to chapter 32, he is not considered righteous, and that's an issue. So we're going to work through that in the two weeks we have together. Jacob, at this point, is a deceiver. He's a usurper. In fact, that's what his name means, right? If you go back and look at what Jacob's name means, it's deceiver. That's like the worst thing your name could ever mean, right? That's why we will see he goes through a dramatic name. What what happens to his name? It gets changed. And that's evidence of his character transformation. That's a little spoiler alert, but I feel like it could be helpful. So turn over to chapter 32 with that introduction So we're in the Toledot of Isaac, the generations of Isaac, which focuses on Jacob and Esau. In chapter 25, Esau sells his birthright. That was absolutely ridiculous. He should not have done that. In chapter 27, Jacob steals his blessing. He should not have done that. He should have just trusted God. But when we get to chapter 32, Jacob's transformation begins. His character begins to transform. He begins to show virtue. That's the larger context. Several key events have transpired so far in the Isaac Toledot. As I mentioned, birthright and blessing issues in chapter 25 and 27. 
In chapter 27, verse 41, Esau, his brother, is so livid, he's so furious at what just transpired that he threatens to kill Jacob. So in light of that reality, Isaac sends Jacob away. And Jacob is actually away from the family for 20 years, two decades. During that time, he has multiple wives, he has multiple kids, he has up to 11 kids at this point. Only Benjamin hasn't been born yet. So a lot's been going on in 20 years since he left, besides all the family hostility back in Canaan. Jacob interacts with Laban, which was Isaac's wife's brother. Remember, Jacob served Laban for 14 years. He ends up sticking around for another six years. And then in Genesis 31, God tells Jacob to go home. Now, this creates a massive problem. Jacob is going to head home, and who will be awaiting for him at the house? Well, Esau. And Esau, 20 years prior, had just threatened to kill him. So the theme of Genesis 32 is that Jacob anticipates his return home, knowing he will face Esau. We will see God work in the heart of Jacob to transform his character, setting the stage for that Genesis 3.15 seed to perpetuate through him. That's what's going on in these chapters. And brothers and sisters, I understand that this is the book of Genesis. I understand that it's the Old Testament. I understand that it was written a few thousand years ago. But what we see in Jacob needs to happen to our lives. If we are not in Christ, we need transformed. If we are in Christ, we need to continue to pursue sanctification to be made more like Christ. So no one is exempt from Genesis 32 and 33. Jacob is a wonderful example of someone that was a deceiver who's radically transformed. We see that unfold for us in three scenes. The first scene is that Jacob acknowledges the presence of God. Jacob acknowledges the presence of God. So you follow along as I read just the opening two verses here of Genesis 32. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahinam. So all loose ends have been tied up between Jacob and Laban. Jacob departs at the command of God and heads home to Canaan. As I noted, things with the family didn't leave on a high note. So this chapter is going to present his heart preparation as he goes back home. Now, if you notice here, this chapter, and it ends this way as well, it ends sort of abruptly with supernatural encounters. So there's two supernatural encounters that we see here. The first one is that the holy angels are present around Jacob as he returns home. Now, this, this hasn't happened before. So interjected here in 32 is the idea that God is now with Jacob. We see that here with the holy angels. Notice the angels appear. We don't know how many angels appear. We aren't even told what they said to Jacob. 
In fact, if you just count here, and this is what I learned in Hebrew, there's only four Hebrew words I learned how to count in seminary. There's only four Hebrew words that describe the encounter because what is not important is what the angel said. What is important is that they demonstrate that God's presence is there. Okay, that's the point. Well, there's another supernatural reality, and you saw this. Jacob refers to this situation where he's currently at, returning home, as God's camp. God is present, and we know that because he names the place the camp of God. This is very similar to previous Genesis language referring to the house of God. Jacob names the place Mahai name, which means, and this is important, so let this stick in your mind. We'll see this in a minute. This place means two camps, two camps. And the point being of these supernatural realities is that God is with Jacob. Now, this ought to tip Jacob off to the fact that when he meets Esau, considering that God is with him, that everything will go well. And in fact, it will. We'll see that next week. But that brings us to the second scene. So we've seen Jacob acknowledge the presence of God. God's presence is with him as he returns. The second scene is Jacob prepares to reunite with Esau. And this scene can be broken down into four parts. And so we'll look at these parts together. Uh, The first part is Jacob's message to Esau. Jacob's message to Esau. Verse 3, Then Jacob, he sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. Let's stop right there. So in preparation for this return home to reunite with Esau, Jacob sends some of his own messengers forward to sort of prepare the way. This is like a, this is John the Baptist-esque. He, he wants to prepare the way to Esau because things didn't end well, so he wants to sort of welcome this interaction by, by buttering him up a little bit. That's exactly what he does. Notice the language. Look at verse 4. He tells his servants to refer to Esau as his Lord. That's amazing. He's exercising humility. We haven't seen that from Jacob before. He's acting in a subordinate manner. We haven't seen Jacob act like that before. If anything, he's just sort of been on a power trip, stealing birthrights and blessings. But here, returning home, he he wants the messengers, his messengers, to refer to Esau as Lord Well, so the messengers deliver the message. You saw that. We assume that it went well because the messengers come back and they return to Jacob and they respond by saying, yeah, we communicated with Esau. We called him Lord. But oh, by the way, he's actually on his way towards you and he's got 400 men. 
Now, Jacob's reaction to that, I mean, you can only imagine what he thought at that point. 400 of Esau's men are heading his direction. Uh, That's a lot of men. Most likely powerful, valiant, able to fight. Well, how does Jacob respond to this news? That brings us to the next part here in this scene. Jacob's response, reaction. Jacob's response or reaction. Look at verse 7. I mean, this is kind of obvious, verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. So clearly Jacob assumed the worst, and he really didn't have any other reason but to assume the worst based on how things left. It says he was greatly afraid, he was distressed. The word distressed has the idea of being bound up. I think that he was so scared that he was ultimately frozen. You've seen that before. Maybe you've done that when something sort of out of the ordinary happens or you get scared, you just freeze. That's essentially what he's doing. So after he sort of gathers his feet, he recovers. Notice it says that he divides his caravan of people into what? Two camps. Two camps. Uh, The same type of language we already saw. Now this, if you think about it, is a genius move on Jacob's part. He understands 400 men are coming. He understands that it's best in his situation to divide up everybody that's with him. This would be his wives, this would be his children, his messengers, cattle, the the, the whole nine yards, divided up into two groups. That way, if Esau attacks one of them, okay, that's not going to go well for them, but at least the other camp is still alive. That's what he's thinking, right? It really is genius. From a human perspective, this is well-planned. It's a phenomenal strategy. But it doesn't end there. And again, Track with me here. This is demonstrating his character transformation. Although he's making all human plans, human efforts, trying to bring resolution to what could potentially be a disaster, notice in the third part of this scene, he begins to pray. He begins to pray. Verse 9, Jacob said, and again, this, he hasn't done this before. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sands of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. That's an amazing prayer, isn't it? Jacob ultimately knows in this situation, no matter what he does, that he has to rely upon God, the God who is of Abraham and who is of Isaac. So in this prayer, we actually see four timeless features. 
four timeless features uh, really that set the stage for ways that we can pray. So the first feature of Jacob's prayer is that he rehearses the character of God. He rehearses the character of God. So in the midst of his distress, in the midst of his trouble, in the midst of his anguish, he first goes back to the character of God and he cries out to God as it relates to what God has said. What do I mean by that? What God had said to Abraham and Isaac as it relates to the Abrahamic covenant. And what that simply means is that there will be a seed that comes from their line, including Jacob. And Jacob knows God cannot lie. And since God has made such promises that they will come to pass, he knows God will sovereignly and providentially bring his promises to pass. Brothers and sisters, when we go to God, this ought to be our first response. Going to the character of God. After he goes from the character of God and he speaks of God's promises in his word, uh, he then begins to admit his own unworthiness. Uh, you could summarize that in one word, humility. Humility. Verse 10, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. Notice, by the way, he calls himself a servant. But he says he's unworthy of everything that God has done for him. Think about your own life. Think back within the last five years, 10 years, as far back as you can remember. Think about the faithfulness of God in your life. Think about the faithfulness of God in your life today. Jacob realizes that he is unworthy of how God has been treating him, that deceiver. Even while he was deceiving his family and acting a, like a wretched fool, God was still faithful. Unworthy literally means I am too small. I am too small. Inconsequential. Jacob is saying he is too small. He is of no value. He is completely unworthy of the goodness of God. Well, there's a third feature of this prayer. He moves from humility and unworthiness to requesting for God's help or requesting for God's deliverance. Verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. Deliver has the idea of saving. God, be my savior is essentially what he is proclaiming. Save me, uh, deliver me, uh, rescue me. This word is used throughout the Old Testament in reference to rescuing victims. Jacob appeals to God for divine rescue. He needs help. And then the last feature of this prayer is that Jacob trusts in God's unfailing promises. He trusts in God's unfailing promises. 
verse 12, for you said, God, you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea. So Jacob knows that 400 men are coming his way, but he rests on the fact that God told him that you will have descendants. So this ought to tell Jacob that Esau and his men will not annihilate his entire family, that at least one will continue because God promised that that would happen. Jacob and his family are out in the desert. I mean, they're in the middle of nowhere. There is nowhere for them to hide. Esau and 400 men are heading their way. Of course, he doesn't know what Esau is going to do. And at this point in the story, we don't either. But he's banking on something very bad. And he knows his only hope is God. Have you been there in your life before? Where the circumstances in which you live seem to be going downward, spiraling out of control, things that are, that are out of your control, th- things that you can't personally do anything about because you live in a fallen world? Have you gotten to the point where you just trust and rest in God's unfailing promises as it relates to Him transforming you to the character of Christ through all the circumstances that you face. I mean, that's where we ultimately get when we finish Genesis, right? Like Joseph, man, that situation was terrible. (laughs) They all meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's Jacob's perspective here. God, here's what you promised. Things aren't looking great, but I'm I'm casting myself upon you. I'm trusting you and your word. I mean, notice here, he's not even asking for supernatural intervention. I mean, he just met with angels. He could have been like, yeah, God, do something supernatural. But instead, he says, I I trust your word. I trust what you have said. We're still in this second scene here. There's a fourth and final part of this second scene, and that is Jacob's gifts. I mean, Jacob is going all out here to make sure that this thing works out (laughs) with Esau. Now, this gifting, this process of giving gifts uh, begins in verse 13 and it runs through verse 21. I'm going to summarize it for you. Not only has Jacob sent out messengers, he now decides that it will be best to give Esau generous gifts. I mean, he, he's going to butter him up a little bit. Jacob divides up his servants and his animals into groups. Now, this is very strategic. And he instructs them to head towards Esau in waves or in groups to present him with gifts. So he divides up all that he's got, and he's going to send gifts and cattle with his messengers up to Esau in waves. It's going to happen in segments. One group of servants would present certain animals, the next group would come and they would present other animals and so on and so forth. And each group was to let Esau know that such gifts were from, notice the language here, his servant, Jacob. Christmas morning, growing up, 
when we would open gifts at our family, with our family, we'd only start with the smaller gifts first, right? I used this illustration last time, and someone after me told us that we open the big gifts first. Well, if that's what you do, this illustration doesn't work. But if you open up the smaller gifts first, like we would go over to the fireplace and the stuff, you know, hopefully the stockings were still hanging there and hadn't fallen. We would dig in there and a lot of times it's like a box of nerds. I loved nerds as a kid, right? You just shake that thing around, dump them. But then you get to the, the bigger gifts at the end, right? I remember when that bicycle rolled in the front door, I just couldn't believe it. That's the idea behind the gift presentation that we would see here from Jacob to Esau, the gifts progressively got bigger and larger and better. He's paving the way to ultimately get to this final interaction or this interaction that hasn't taken place in two decades. So the stage is set. Jacob and Esau are going to meet. But interestingly, we come to a third and final scene of this chapter and that is that Jacob encounters the pre-incarnate Christ. I bet he didn't expect that to happen. Jacob encounters the pre-incarnate Christ. Verse 22, Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and the eleven children that crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob. Your name shall no longer be deceiver, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God Face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Let's stop right there. A.W. Pink says that this is a most important crisis in the life of Jacob. Now, the first question that comes to mind is who is Jacob wrestling with? There isn't really a description of this man, we're told. Verse 28 seems to suggest this man is God. You have striven with God. Verse 30 says, this is Jacob's response, that he has seen God face to face. That seems to be pretty clear. Hosea 12.4, commenting on this passage, says that this man is the angel of the Lord, which we've already seen in Genesis 16, 18, 21, and 22. Jacob is most likely wrestling with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think about this setting and this scene. At the beginning of the chapter, we've got a visit from holy angels. 
We've got those supernatural realities demonstrating that God is with Jacob. And then at the end of this chapter, what do we have again? Another supernatural reality here, the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, makes a pre-incarnate appearance and wrestles with Jacob. I mean, this tells us that this heart transformation, this character transformation is a divine work. It's a sovereign work. We find three crucial details in this final scene, and then we will wrap up our time together. Uh, The first crucial detail is Jacob's injury. Jacob's Jacob's injury, that takes place in 24 and 25. In this wrestling match, Jacob gets injured, and it was the object lesson of who was in control. God was in control of this entire scene, not Jacob. The second crucial detail we see is Jacob gets a new name. Jacob gets a new name. Verses 26 through 29 document that the Lord Jesus Christ changes his name from Jacob to Israel, from deceiver, supplanter, to God who fights, to God who fights. Uh, The point of this name change, and don't miss this, the point of the name change is to demonstrate a stark change in the moral character of Jacob. I mean, you can think about jump forward to the New Testament. One of the most prominent figures in the New Testament experiences some sort of a name change, although it's more language usage. Saul, Paul. Jacob is no longer who he used to be. And this is identified by taking on a new name, which the new name in Jewish thought always presented a reflection of your character. The third crucial detail is that Jacob worships. Jacob worships. As a commemoration here in verse 30, Jacob named the place Peniel, as a commemoration for his wrestling with Christ. He names it Peniel, which means the face of God. And while he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that he survived such a wrestling match because God allowed him to live, uh, the text tells us that he has been preserved, acknowledging that God allowed it. All Jacob can do is worship. And it's interesting, that language, he just saw God face to face, because in the next chapter, who is he about to see face to face? Esau. It's amazing watching that interconnectivity between the text. He has been preserved, so he worships. So Jacob, now Israel, has encountered God, and he has been forever changed. He demonstrates that by worship. I bet Jacob never thought in his preparation to return to Esau would result in a supernatural encounter with Christ. How does the story end? Verses 31 and 32. Jacob is limping because of his recent injury. You can see that in verse 31. And in verse 32, the nation of Israel actually set apart eating certain tendons of animals 
in response to what had just happened in the interaction between Jacob and Christ. That's verse 32. So this incident in the nation of Israel's history became a huge deal. It was a big deal because Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes, had been changed. He was a new man. What does this mean for us today? Well, first off, in conjunction with verses 31 and 32, you can eat meat if you would like. This was for a limited time in the Old Testament where they held this commemoration of this event. If you want to grab barbecue after church today, I'll gladly go with you. You're paying. But more importantly, in in all seriousness, here's what we take away from the text, points number two and three, that God is sovereign over character transformation. God is sovereign over character transformation. If you are in Christ today, it's because he stepped into your life, he pulled you out of the grave, and he transformed you. And if you are here today and you've been in Christ for many weeks, many months, many years, it is still God who is transforming you into the image of his son. And as we'll see next chapter, Jacob lives. <laughs> he lives. His sons live. And the Genesis 3.15 seed continues bringing forth Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2. And it's because of Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection, that any one of us will ever have character transformation like we see in Genesis 31 and 32. We'll see what happens next week with the end of this story. Pray with me. God, we are grateful for your word. Grateful for the fact that you are sovereign over character transformation as we have seen with Jacob. God, and even as we can see in our own lives that by your grace you have changed us all through Christ for your glory. May we not stop there, but continue to pursue righteousness and holiness all the days of our life for your purposes and for your glory. In Jesus' name.